Patrick Holloman of the Reverse Game Design Forum. Uh, how are you doing, Patrick? I'm good. It's uh, so the two, two it's a, the Reverse Design series is the books, and the Game Design okay. Forum is my website. Yeah, yeah. The books, uh, they there's like six or seven. How many are there now? Six books. Yeah, Reverse <laughs> Designs, Final Fantasy VI, VII, Chrono Trigger, Diablo II, Half Life, and Super Mario World. Nice. Okay. And then you've also taken those and, and started putting them into kind of um, extract form on YouTube as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And then anytime a video editor says they need some content and wants to work with me, I go, yes, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so of all of these kind of projects uh, that you do, um, what would you say, like, what first got you interested in doing uh, video game studies? And, and where do you feel like you're um, your real calling is uh, with all the different um, projects that you do? Um, so I graduated from college with no skills um, except writing. And uh, I was like, well, this is not going to work. I applied to all places where people could write. But um, Facebook, you know, had, had just sort of nuked writing for everybody by reporting a bunch of false numbers around 2010 2011. Um, I graduated in 2008. I had a job until the recession. Um, so I like right, right before 2010, I lost my job laid off and like a lot of people, it's not a big, not a big shock. Um, and then I had no skills and not a lot of prospects and I knew I wanted to make games. And I said, what can I do to make games? Well, writing is what I've got. So why don't I start writing about games in a way that nobody else is? So I did a bunch of research. Yeah. I found that lots of people were writing about the humanistic aspects of games. And I liked a lot of that. But because everyone was doing it and that and the, the sort of sociopolitical implications of games, I decided I would avoid that at all costs and started writing about game design. What, what makes games fun? Um, how, how are games constructed? What are the mathematical decisions? And I just sort of leaned harder and harder into that until I was writing the longest articles that existed. Um, and then they were book length. And I was like, I should just make this a series. And I did. Yeah. No, it's, this is a... I think that's that's what I've noticed about your work as well. It's, it's a lot of research, a lot of data, um, and then you're able to really draw some cool conclusions from that as well, though, uh, to, to that humanistic uh, side of things as well. So, um, so for example, like um, looking at uh, the kinds of dialogue from NPCs telling you about the world that you're in or telling you about um, different events that you can accomplish within that world, um, or, you know, looking at the kinds of things that uh, go into a, designing a level um, in a platformer or, or something like that. Um, so do you have a favorite? I mean, you seem to write about pretty much all different genres. Do you have a favorite uh, type of game or a favorite individual game that you, you're sort of drawn back towards? I mean, I absolutely have a favorite genre of game. That's Japanese RPGs or JRPGs since the, mm. the, the J has been reanalyzed to signify a genre instead of a, um, a geographical origin. Hmm. Um, and, and three out of the six books are about Squaresoft um, 90s games. So they're about, you know, the, the golden age, as I call it, of the story-oriented linear console RPG from Japan. Um, so that's where my heart lies. Um, but I, I wanted to know more about other games, too. Um, I like, you know, I wanted to, I was like, I knew Shigeru Miyamoto was a big influence in video games. And so I'm going to look at one of his classic works that I know really well and figure out how he made levels and just yeah. basically start with questions. How did they do this? Is there a pattern? And there was. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a pattern. And I actually started, I wrote that book, the Super Mario World book, 
Um, it took me much longer than all the other ones because when I started it, I was like, oh, I'm just going to talk about the patterns in these overall like I did for the RPG books. And then as I got into it, I was like, oh, no, I have to literally write about the pattern of each and every level or else this book will be woefully incomplete. <laughs> and sort of my I mean, I, I, I had I had also just gotten my first job full time job after the recession at the same time. And so that slowed it down, too. So it just ended up being this um, sort of. Uh, you know, a latter day odyssey of uh, sailing through the, uh, the, the Aegean of research of, of spreadsheets, um, <laughs> tr trying to find my way to answer a question that you know, I asked very innocently many years <laughs> earlier of how our games designed and finding that the answer was, you know, as long as it was, was so long as to be you know, almost impossible to convey mm -hmm. um, outside of something less than a book. Yeah. No, so then, um, what would you say to people who are interested in getting into this kind of work? I mean, I I've only recently started to um, try to read into uh, some of my favorite classic video games, and um, and I'm looking around at, at the kind of the work that's out there now and the kind of research that you're doing, and I'm pretty astonished by it. Like, how how do you do that, or um, where do you start? Um, so yeah, I mean, when I started, there was not as much. It was this was 2010. Um, and there, like I said, there was not as the field was not as broad as it is now. Nowadays, there's dozens of books um, on about video game design and storytelling and everything. And everybody who, you know, thought, hey, maybe I'll write a book. You know, a lot of them went and did so. Um, mm -hmm. I got in on the early edge of that, and so you know, some people read it. It's but uh, and that doesn't translate to financial success. Uh, if you are looking to you know quit your day job, uh, don't don't write books about <laughs> games. Um, the, you will. Uh, it, I probably made um, less than a dollar an hour overall, um, yeah. but I learned a lot. Um, so when I started, I, I mean, I simply, the first thing I did was I, I went on GameFAQs.com and I downloaded all of the available information I could find about Final Fantasy VI. Mm. And I put it, I collated into spreadsheets. And I said, what can I learn from this? Um, I have formulae, I have, uh, you know, script, I have maps, I have items, I have lists. How can I turn this into... A single thesis and um i think I, I probably already had an inkling about that um which was that final fantasy 6 is sort of the pivot point for console rpgs where they stopped trying to be like dungeons and dragons and stop trying to be like pc rpgs they tried to they said forget it we'll we'll drop all of the things that you know the, those game we can't do um we'll, we'll drop character classes because we want to tell a story about people and if if your favorite characters you know this uh, like a rogue and the dungeon doesn't call for a rogue you won't be able to bring them so you can't bring your favorite character and we don't want that so and then they they also you know a lot of other decisions like um we want the game to be very long the plot to take a long time so you know it has to be 99 levels instead of 20 um the you know the, that we want to have a large cast so all of the characters need to be roughly equal in terms of strength although there are definitely characters who are stronger than others you can pretty much bring anybody um, to any dungeon, and I, I showed, pretty much showed that mathematically. And then they also wanted to focus on, um, you know, if you have a large cast, they, they you want to focus on a, the villain as the center of the action rather than um, any any one protagonist. And if you look at the dialogue, you'd see that too. Nobody, I don't think anybody considers Locke the thief to be the main character, and yet he's the <laughs> most outspoken. So, you know, just looking at that data showed me that they were they were using different strategies in, in Final Fantasy VI than they were using in, say, Ultima or Baldur's Gate, um, mm -hmm. and and so I started writing about that with that overarching thesis, and 
eventually arrived at the book as it exists today, and then that sort of inspired a, a further quest to explain how all RPGs um, sort of were influenced by Dungeons & Dragons or agonized by Dungeons & Dragons in the sense that, um, you know, like they, they wanted to do something different. They wanted to stand out and be unique. And how are they going to do that? What artistic strategy could they could they use? And then I spent, you know, about half of nine years off and on answering that question. That's awesome. Yeah. So the turning point then, uh, as as Final Fantasy VI focuses more on story, uh, less on some of those tabletop RPG elements. Um, that's really interesting because it's kind of like coming full circle in that the uh, the tabletop RPGs, a lot of them, don't they take from um, from the story of uh, of uh, Tolkien and, and things like that. Um, so you sort of have this this movement between uh, story and game, and then coming back towards story. Um, so, what would you say uh, is is the the point of similarity? Like, if you're going to try to write about um, sort of what all RPGs are up to these days, is that is that it? Is it that they're they're interested in telling more complex um, and uh, and profound stories? Um, is there something more to it that um, that sort of the new te technologies have allowed us to do, or um, how do you expand that uh, that thesis about Final Fantasy to uh, encompass the uh, the JRPG or the RPG as a whole. Yeah, I mean, so what I, this is my, my, my general thesis, and I have essentially two theses about the history of video games, um, and one is about RPG specifically, hmm. is that um, video games, you know, did, or more broadly digital RPGs, uh, they couldn't recreate Dungeons and Dragons, especially in the early 80s when they were getting started. And uh, so they, they, you know, they adopted, the creators adopted three strategies for dealing with that. Um, not just Final Fantasy, but almost everyone. So one strategy was what I call simplification, which means you, you try and do D&D, &D, but you don't, you don't dumb things down, but you simplify and streamline certain things so that they will fit on a computer because no computer can yet um, encompass the human imagination. Um, <laughs> it depends on whose imagination you're talking about, but uh, <laughs> um, nevertheless, uh, so, you know, Ultima is the wizardry, things like that are, are, are great examples, might and magic, great examples of games that, you know, try and do most of the things that D&D &D does. They don't always do it in the same way. Um, often they will change formulas or, or you know, like things like that. Um, they'll change the way certain systems work, but they always have the same systems that Dungeons and Dragons has or, or you know, any of Dungeons and Dragons imitators like Traveler or Gerbs or things like that, but. You know, they, they're, they're trying to match that tabletop scope. Um, and those games still exist. Um, you have, you know, Dragon Age, uh, Baldur's Gate. Now, I think, I think Baldur's Gate 3 is coming out, right? And which will probably be the broadest simpl simplification yet. That's, you know, the least simplified version of a, of a Dungeons & Dragons game, as, as you can imagine. Uh, it be exciting to see what that's like. Um, but not everyone decided to do that. Um, some people didn't have the time or wherewithal or budget. Or just decided, hey, you know, this is silly. Let's why don't we stick to something that's more within the voice of, of, uh, of, of the, the machines that we have. Let's let's play to the strengths. Um, so one other thing they did was the second strategy was just combination, which just means they combined RPG mechanics with action games or other console genres that existed already. So you get games like Dragon Slayer or Secret of Mana or even more recently Minecraft or the Deus Ex series. Um, or even Call of Duty now. They have a whole multiplayer system where they have RPG stats involved. So 
that started in the 80s too. Um, and then the third strategy, which is the one that Final Fantasy falls into, I think the most interesting, is what I call specialization. Which basically means that they'd look at RPG, the D&D scope, and said, no way, we're not going to be able to do all of that. Why don't, we, why don't we pick just a couple things, you know, a few things here that we're going to focus on and just do that. And um, the, the, the archetypal game to do that was Rogue, um, the 1981 or 1980-81, depending on your release, uh, um, roguelike game, which coined the, coined the term. Um, it was not the first roguelike, but it did, it did codify what roguelikes were. And in that game, you only go into a dungeon and fight monsters and, and find loot. That's it. That's all you do. You don't talk. You don't have a story. You don't recruit party members. You don't, you know, you don't really do anything except fight and disarm traps and find loot. That's, that's all you do. You identify items. That's your big payoff. Um, and if you die, you're, you, it's permanent, but you're back in a dungeon in a couple of mouse clicks. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this was before even that. I don't know. I, I never played the original <laughs> version. Um, I think I played the DOS box version. But uh, um, so Rogue is very good at doing a very small number of things that an RPG can do. And it just focuses on those to the exclusion of everything else. Eventually, Final Fantasy would do the same thing. So the first, I would say, four Final Fantasies um, were essentially simplifications in the manner of Ultima, even more simplified because the Nintendo, um, you know, the, the NES couldn't really handle even what, you know, personal computers couldn't mm-hmm. and the code architecture was very different so the, even the controller doesn't allow you to do a lot of the ui things that you would want to do in a, a pc game so you know the first few final fantasies they they were a little more story centric a little more linear than than your typical pc rpg but they nevertheless were trying to do a dungeons and dragons type game and then final fantasy 4 came along and there's actually a, a quote in the uh, final fantasy ultimania archive which is a book published by square square enix Mm-hmm. In which um, I think it's Takashi Tokita, the director of Final Fantasy IV, and Hironobu Sakaguchi got together and they said, we want to make a game. This is the design document for Final Fantasy IV. We want to make a game where the, play- the player feels like a protagonist in a movie. Cool. And that is, that's like, the, well, clearly, there's the mission statement, the bat signal that says, we're going we're gonna to pivot away from this. But they, it took them time to get there. Um, you know, it, so Final Fantasy IV, despite... It's you know much more active and, and 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 intricate plot than anything else in the series so far. Still heavily based around Dungeons and Dragons ideas. Everyone has a job class, um, right. and there's lots of characters. So like at certain points of the game, the, the game is much harder than other points because you don't have a very good party composition. Like you have a lot of magic users at certain points, and you can run out of MP and be like, oh oh. Um, <laughs> I think the section where you have Purim and Param. It's, it's just altogether too easy to run out of, of steam there. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not like it's a, it's a terribly hard game, but it's just uneven. And you, you, a good game tends to have an even difficulty curve where it proceeds you know, generally upward, but also up and down in, in a sort of regular way. And that's not what Final Fantasy IV does. But they had prioritized telling a story. And in order to tell the kind of story they wanted to tell, they needed lots of characters. And in order to have lots of characters, they needed lots of character classes. So they had a problem there. Um, and in Final Fantasy V, they solved that problem by reducing the number of characters, but also by making job classes flexible. So your protagonists can act and say like whatever. They don't have to act like mages or act like rogues. They can act like just the people they are. Yeah. Um, and, and the job class they can have can be anything. And therefore, you know, you still have those, that jo- job class that is the anchor of, of D&D. Uh, you know, job classes were essentially inherited from the the, the strategy games that D and D was born out of. 
Um, but you have, you know, flexible story. You can like, um, you know, I, I don't want to spoil too much about Final Fantasy V, but um, somebody dies and you know, that, that character is able to be replaced um, really easily because job classes are flexible. You know, that character was not your key healer. You're not losing all of that. Um, and so that you can do more dramatic things like that. But Final Fantasy Five, of course, you know, uh, like Final Fantasy Four, featured a fairly bland protagonist who didn't aim much, didn't think much, um, had a heroic quest, and that's about it. Um, and then, you know, in Final Fantasy VI, they were like, okay, well, what if we don't even have a designated hero? What if we don't have to worry about him being the team leader or paladin or whatever archetype needs to be in charge? What if we just have 14 people and everyone is the star? Um, yeah. for, maybe not, uh, you know, Mog and Gogo and Umaro. But, uh, um, you know, that every character gets their moment in the sun in Final Fantasy VI in a big way. And that's partially because, you know, they, ha they only have what I would call soft job classes. Almost yeah. anybody can equip almost any item. Um, you know, so it's like in the, in the best light armor and the best heavy armor are the same strength, essentially. So um, in Final Fantasy VI, you get that really radical moment where the series becomes a, a specialization RPG where they say, hey, forget job classes. Let's just focus on linear stories. Forget players who you, you are, you're in control of. Let's make protagonists who the game tells them what to say, and they're going to say it. And if the player doesn't like it, well, then the player just is going to feel that dissonance. Let's just forget all of that. So let's just get, let's tell this, the story we want to tell with the people we want to, we want to put in there. And if players, if players like it, great. If they don't, well, we'll who knows what will happen. But people, of course, loved it. The game shipped yeah. like 2 million copies. And the rest is history. That's an interesting uh, kind of inflection point there because um, if if you're trying to get your uh, game player to feel like the protagonist of a movie, it's it's really interesting to have them in a way like play every character <laughs> in Final Fantasy VI. Um, in other games, um, my favorite game was Earthbound, and that game has a silent protagonist, um, so you don't you don't ever have the main character uh, directly speaking for you. You you sort of are able to um, fully immerse yourself in that world um, if, if you want to imagine yourself um, responding. Um, but the game doesn't sort of give you dialogue for the, the, the protagonist. Um, so it's kind of an interesting shift that happens there. I know that um, around the time that Final Fantasy VII was being developed, um, that's when Xenogears kind of comes on the scene as well. And um, so a lot of the development ideas that flow out of FF6... Um, Kind of bifurcate and and get mixed together in these two major games that come thereafter. Um, and so, do, have you looked much into the uh, the development history of Xenogears and Final Fantasy VII? Could you speak a little about um, about that, and then and then we can kind of shift and and focus in on on Xenogears' story and, and themes a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I guess I'll go in chronological order. I mean, Final Fantasy VII. Um, the development history is sort of a, one of, of many different creative voices coming together. Um, you know, in the in the credits for the game, if, I mean, anybody who's listening, I should tell you right now, never trust video game credits. <laughs> yeah, right. um, you know, it just like you should not trust uh, credit from anybody. It's unreliable. Um, but so video game credits, you know, they, they say that the story, I think, was by... Uh, series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi and his and uh, and uh, I think and then Kitase, the director of the game. Um, mm -hmm. of that the notion that Kitase directed the game and, and that Sakaguchi only produced it is, of course, 
specious. Sakaguchi never worked on a project where he didn't control a lot of everything. Um, <laughs> that's what you get when you're the series creator. So, and then of course, I think the script was written or claimed to be written by uh, the new writer they hired, Kazushige Nojima, who went on to write Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy VIII, and Tetsuya Nomura, um, longtime series uh, producer. And uh, as we have discovered, that was actually so that that the credits as they exist were are sort of tell a misleading story sakaguchi and and Kitase wrote a plot draft and then nojima came in and rewrote the draft um to make the plot basically create the mystery of cloud and then um they brought in Mas- masato kato um the writer of, of large parts of chrono trigger to then polish oh, that at the end without being credited um oh, okay interesting and then, yeah no more uh I mean, he, I think he's credited somewhere in there, but not in the role that not not in the way he deserved to be if he were using screenwriting standards, you know, from the Screenwriting Guild of, of the United States. Um, I, I have no idea. It's a collective effort over in Japan. Nobody seemed particularly upset about it, but um, it's it gives you an idea of how con- convoluted the process of developing Final Fantasy VII was. Um, so, you know, lots of people wrote drafts and lots of people wrote different scenes in Final Fantasy VII, but the result of all of that ended up being that a lot of people's artistic goals were getting met in that game. And it means that the game is a little bit crazy, but also kind of awesome. Um, Definitely. So the whole, whole cloud mystery, you know, that they, they brought Nojima in specifically after he had been working on some um, a, a Heracles series, the Hercules, I forget. It's a, it's a, I think it's an Enix game or like an, um, I can't remember the publisher, but anyway, he was working on some you know, low profile JRPGs in Japan and they brought him in just to write the mystery of Cloud because they wanted to make him very mysterious. And he sort of took that and ran with it. And yeah. I, I bring this up because Cloud is, to me, the barometer of what Final Fantasy VII is. Cloud is not only not you, he's very much a person apart from who you want him to be. You don't okay. control what, he, what he's going to do. I mean, you have a few sections where you can, say, pick who you want to shower with affection. Um, not that it really matters in the end, or you can respond to certain people and certain like being cool or being nice, but it doesn't ultimately affect that much. But beyond all of that, Cloud is lying to you, right? He's, right. he's essentially your arm, and it's like your arm is lying to you. Your arm is telling you that something is hot when it's cold or heavy when it's light. <laughs> it's, it's a very bizarre thing to have an unreliable um, narrator who is supposed to be you. Um, yes. You, when you when you you know um, watch like a Hitchcock movie or or read a you know a, a, a novel you know but like any any novel where people are slightly unreliable um, trying to think of a good example I mean the, the best examples from the 90s would be like Memento the movie Memento or mm-hmm. the Chuck Palahniuk novels like Fight Club where they are unreliable narrators um, and but you can kind of expect that based on the structure of the story right you, you don't you're not identifying with that person too much. The reason you like them is because they're interesting and they're not you. Um, and, 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 the, and the setup is definitely there to tell you that they might be unreliable. So that the payoff still feels good, but it's not as shocking as when Cloud says, yo, by the way, all these things that you have been saying through me have been a lie, in a sense. So Final Fantasy VII in that regard is, you know, one of the boldest RPGs of all time. It, you know, it does something that no other RPG even came close to doing. It's the the opposite of player projection. It takes agency away from the player very much without telling them so. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's, that is what Final Fantasy VII is, right? It, it takes all of the RPG conventions that, you know, existed in the past and 
sort of dispenses with them and says, we're going to do things this way. And, you know, we still got to level up. You're still going to have, you know, spells and items and fight monsters and go through dungeons. But we're going to tell the story that we want to tell. You don't have a lot of control over it. We're going to, you know, kill some of your party members and, and you know, subvert flashbacks. And we're going to do all manner of things to you that if you had choice, you probably would never choose for yourself. But that's what's going to make this special. And, of course, mm-hmm. it was the best-selling RPG on the PlayStation. So it was special. They accomplish those goals. Yeah, and so the um, the inclusion of Kato is quite curious because he uh, he figures not only in the Chrono series but also in Xenogears uh, writing process um, in some interesting ways, right? Um, so so like parallel to this uh, mainline Final Fantasy game that's getting developed there, um, there's also this kind of offbeat uh, <laughs> uh, sort of weird project that um comes to be called xenogears uh so he's involved in that and there's at least two other major writers aren't there um yeah the, the director um uh tetsuya takahashi and mm-hmm. the producer takahashi's wife um soraya saga as she is commonly known or kaori tanaka as she's credited her her given name um okay. yeah so all three of them worked together although it, I, my I mean, I'm reading it secondhand. My Japanese is not good enough to read it in the original. But the, there's a well-known style that Kato has that is evident in many places. Okay. Um, so it's it's pretty clear that Kato probably did the bulk of the prosody of, um, of, of Xenogears. Um, and that would make sense since um, Takahashi and uh, uh, Tanaka had a lot of other things to do. Tanaka... Um, right. Diddle is an, was an illustrator, and she, of course, had to draw quite a bit, a bit of stuff. And then Tanaka, or I'm um, sorry, Takahashi had to direct the game, which in the 3D game meant manipulating the camera. Like he was mm-hmm. essentially behind the camera at all times. And he, you can see, you know, many iconic moments of framing that are common across the first four Xeno, five Xeno games. Um, wow. Yeah. So, it, it, but it, but it was very much a collaborative effort. Um, the, the the development history of, of Xenogears begins when Takahashi um, would have lunch with his future wife, Tanaka, in the Squaresoft cafeteria. Actually, I think they were working at a different company first, but then they both moved to Squaresoft. And uh, they would just discuss philosophy and religion, and eventually they got married. Um, so it must have been real smooth. Um, but uh, so then they, they, they said they wanted to write a game together, um, or I think they wanted to write a story together, but they both worked at a game company, so it seemed like they just chose the opportunity they had, um, which is smart. I advise anyone to do that. But um, the the premise was essentially that Takahashi wanted to write uh, a game or a story, which happened to be a game. He wanted to write a story about uh, this, a killer with multiple personalities, an assassin, rather, with multiple personalities. And uh, Tanaka wanted to write a story about uh, a woman who gives birth to a new race of human beings. Um, and... They somehow had to get from the the new race of human beings being born to the life of a dissociative killer. Um, (laughs) And that is why the plot of Xenogears is so unusual. Yeah. And so the um, that's sort of the main that's the main dyad of the game. Right. You have Faye and Ellie, um, their relationship that sort of holds everything together. um, And I I think is, yeah, definitely the the strongest part of the story. Um, but it's such a sweeping uh, kind of epic 
uh, treatment uh, to 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 bring together those two um, original ideas, um, and then of course, like you say, to to bring in all of that other stuff that made up um, the writer's relationship. Apparently, their their fascination with philosophy and religion and psychology, and and all of that kind of gets tossed in there, and uh, some giant um, you know robots for for fun. So um, it's a really odd and eclectic mix of things. Um, I I think it sort of works though. You know, it's a it, against all odds. Um, I still think it's a really great game and and not just a great story. I don't know. I guess some people would probably disagree with that. But um, but so just to kind of back up a little, wh when did you first uh, play Xeno Gears and and how did you kind of get into um, you know, reading up on on that particular strange world? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I played Xeno Gears at Christmas of 1998. Um, mm -hmm. I got, like many people, I got uh, Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time, mm -hmm. and um, that was the thing I was really excited about. But I had seen a glowing review of Xeno Gears in uh, PSM, the PlayStation Magazine. And oh yeah. It got five out of five, and just, just was just drooling over the game. And it was during the golden age of SquareSoft, where I would have bought a you know a grocery list if they had published it, and. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I was like, okay, well, this is a definite buy. Um, and so, I, but I, you know, I, I started with, uh, the legend of Zelda and, uh, the Ocarina of time, which is a, also a fantastic game. No knock on oh, that. Um, wonky camera, but brilliant ideas and very, still very fun. You can get over the controls. Um, you just have to forgive early 3d games for the controls, but, um, played it all the way up to the forest temple, got stuck on a puzzle. Ooh. Um, I, as it happens that I'm a little bit colorblind and Zelda, Zelda puzzles can sometimes, I can sometimes miss certain cues. Um, and uh, so I was just stuck and I said, oh, well, I guess I'll try this other game, Xenogears. I don't know much about it other than it got glowing review from one of my favorite companies. So I put it in and there on the screen was the um, quote, I think, what, Revelation 13. Um, <laughs> something I can't remember the chapter. I can't remember the chapter. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't find that book to be a helpful reading, but <laughs> so and then it then comes up. I am I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And I was like, "Whoa, this yeah, game means yeah. it." Um, and I was like, "That's like, you, wow, that's a heck of a place to begin." And then the whole scene with the Eldridge and everything. And I was like, "Wow, these guys are really going for it." And I was hooked. <laughs> and the game, as we all know now, doesn't let up. It, it's absolutely that intense the whole way through. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I I I I I think I got a D in math that semester. <laughs> um, I was never math enthusiastic, but uh, I, I did exceptionally poorly in, in uh, quarter three of uh, of uh, 1999, or what? Yeah, 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 the first quarter of 1999, and uh, and uh, but I, I did log my 65 hours, got to see the ending, and mm -hmm. I think it affected me in a pretty profound way because um, I, I I didn't realize this until after it was over, as is the the way with life, but um. I graduated from college realizing that I had spent my entire college experience trying to understand how this thing got made and how to become the kind of person who could make something like that. Yeah. So like I had, I had taken lots of literature courses and studied psychology and philosophy. I had gone to the library on a Friday evening when um, everyone else was having, you know, a real fun time. And I was <laughs> reading the Zohar in a, in a, like a 1915 English translation. No way. You, um, you read the Zohar? Whoa. Yeah. Um, yeah. It even took a, a mysticism class to, to learn more about wow. it. Uh, be able to read about that, which I was super helpful in the end. Um, mysticism mm -hmm. is actually very interesting, but you need a guide. Um, mm -hmm. 
because it's really weird. And it's just it's just some things that are there's certain things about the mystics that are so um, it's it, counterintuitive, uh, you know, especially like someone's like St. John of the Cross. Read about mm-hmm. him. It's wow. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe that a human like that existed. But, you know, they did. And, and, and that's what makes them interesting. So I spent and I, I, I went to Japan. Um, when I was in college and I, I studied Japanese, I'm, I'm not fluent by any means, but I was able to get around and converse and I learned enough to understand where these stories were coming from. Mm. Um, the, the, I had the literature teacher in Japan who said that he, the thesis of the whole class is he, he just sort of got the most interesting books from, from the past, you know, 50 years of Japan for something from like the end of Kawabata's career through Haruki, Haruki Murakami. Um, okay. saying like, so why are these books so strange to us and so wild? And so why are the plots so all over the place? You know, like high, high literature in Japan can have some plots that are really pretty out there. Um, but nobody bats an eye about it. And he said, well, why is this? And he said, well, the answer that he gave was that, um, Japanese people have much more restricted lives. So they have much more wild imaginations and they entertain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more robust fantasies, but also their fantasies tend to be very orderly. Um, and bound by rules, and they have to think. Well, how would how would all those things work? We have to actually, you know, make this a real world and have you know a society that actually functions and makes sense and has order, um, despite having magic. Um, right. And that idea of like of and then magic, of course, was a metaphor, right? For for whatever you know, the, the best example of this, rather than just say something abstruse, the best example is um, Death Note, which is you know, know the. Yeah, so Death Note is an anime. Um, okay. It's it's not high art by any means, but um, in, in the story, a, a, a typical teenager, not typical, but um, a, a, a regular high school student receives a notebook and anyone whose name he writes in the notebook dies. Mm. So it's your average Japanese person um, is suddenly given immense power because that's the essential fantasy, right? Where they, if I live in a society where I have no power or options, I suddenly have all of the power like that, that, that plot, I don't think could, I don't think it could work in the West. Okay. Um, you know, like there would be too much factionalism, right? There'd be too much targeting. We would be like, Oh, who's he going to kill? What, who's he racist against? Or who's he, who's, <laughs> whose politics does he not agree with? Right. We immediately assume we have all these factional implications of someone who receives tremendous power, um, which is like X-Men is about that, right? It's about racism. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. when people have power in the West liability, but, for Light Yagami, the pr- uh, protagonist of um, of Death Note, it, it says something about, you know, if an ordinary person from a restricted life suddenly got power, what would it mean for their character? And what would it mean for the world if they systematically applied it? Um, but that is very much what the Japanese, you know, a, a major component of the Japanese imagination. I won't try to circumscribe the Japanese imagination. That's a whole race of people. I, oh, How silly. But... <laughs> It's a major component, and and having to understand that was, I guess, some uh, a big part of my education, right? I wanted to know how did how did we get to the games like Xenogears or the first game I played, which sort of inspired me, Secret of Mana. These these wild mm-hmm. wild fantasies that were so far removed. I mean, I played Secret of Mana in like 1995, when sure. you know, in a time where we only had like Ducktales on the television. <laughs> right. uh, like I think I think Sailor Moon had come across the ocean two two years earlier, but I had never seen it. And, yeah. and compared to you know, compared to Teddy Ruxpin and Ducktales, Secret of Mana might as well have come from another planet. It was right. like like when people said they had first heard Jimi Hendrix play, they were like, "Where did this come from?" <laughs> um, 
nothing will ever be the same after this. And and they were right about him. And I think they I think that same thing is true about what happened with anime and 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 video games from Japan, JRPGs, is that suddenly everyone had to change the game. They had to you know things had to be more interesting. Um, and like Dragon Ball Z was another like for TV shows that they, they, everybody had to increase the intensity and plot lines of their of their TV after Dragon Ball showed up. Um, and I had to understand why. Like, and so I went to Japan and I studied that stuff. And I guess after I answered that question, I was like, okay, well, I think I understand how this came to be, why it, why it reached me and, and why it was so different from everything I knew. Sort of the next question that I would take on in my life, albeit probably four or five years later, was um, how are video games made? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, that's a, a, a part of this that I know very little about, I guess, is the, the Japanese cultural milieu that um these authors the two or three you know major creators uh the core creators of xenogears are coming out of um such that they are drawing on so much different material um and getting it to kind of hang together in in the way that they do um so yeah there's a lot of different components that go into that um i hadn't really thought about it that way as you say the limitations would um, free up or necessitate um, some kind of stronger uh, imaginative life. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the religious side of it too, because like you, that was one thing that stood out to me immediately about the game, though I didn't fully understand or even necessarily pay that much attention to it at the time. But but the heavy religious uh, iconography, even text that appears throughout Xenogears um, was, I think, a, a pretty unique element of this game uh, at the time, and um, I, I guess I'm curious how that uh, sort of fits in with the um, the imagination side of things. Um, is there, I don't know, is there evidence of um, a, a strong religious feeling one way or the other on the part of the designers, or is it sort of a, a another kind of metaphor, I guess, um, like magic, like in the game Ether, right, Ether power? Um, that they're sort of playing with and, and applying for for their world. I mean, I I think for I think for yeah for for Takahashi at least I I don't want to speak for all Japanese. I mean, they when I was in Japan, I did see that um, they have Western weddings um, where they have someone dress up like a priest to do a Western wedding just because they kind of think it's cute. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, they also have Shinto weddings, which they all take very seriously. You know, they take about you know appropriately seriously as modern people do. Um, and, uh, you know, but they, they, the Western wedding, cause they think it's cute. And so they're, you know, someone in a priest collar, which, you know, over here would, people would be sh- very chagrined, um, at that. <laughs> um, it'd be like that, that means something and, and you don't go around wearing it if you're not one. Um, so, you know, there, there is a certain amount of, um, of, uh, entertainment in the religions of other people in Japan. Um, although I don't think they're actively out to disrespect anybody that's, I never, I never really felt that. Yeah. Um, you call you their version of the N word to, to your face, but it's sort of like old Southern people in that you, they, you just like look at them, you like he just doesn't know better. Um, you just sort of keep going about your day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, whether you know, so there, there is some of that in the milieu over there. But at the same time, I don't think that any of them mean to be insulting. They just, it's very foreign to them. They've never had any exposure to it. Um, you know. Uh, you know, like for example, foreign religions existed in Japan, uh, aside from Buddhism, which of course they have adopted to be their own and modify right. they do modify everything. 
But oh. uh, four legends other than that have only only existed, you know, for like I think between Hideyoshi and Nobunaga um, for like 20, 25 years in the late 1500s and then um, were wiped out by um, uh, Tokugawa. Uh, so they just don't have a lot of grounding in that and in, in the God. religion of other people. Um, and so they think they're very interesting in that regard. So it's like, okay, let's, let's entertain this system of thought. What if it were true? And what if it were, you know, then saying, what if magic were true, um, is the basis of, of course, all fantasy novels, um, uh, you know, at least for the past hundred years or so. And it's not any, I don't think, I don't think it's very strange to say, well, what if Jewish mysticism and Gnosticism and Jungian philosophy were, Jungian psychology, what if those things were all literally true? Um, no what would what would that look like i don't think that's that strange i mean over here we have um the fantasy author tim powers who for several of his novels has supposed what what if what if catholicism were literally true um he's actually catholic he does believe catholicism is literally true but he just you know what if what if we turn that from like a turn the dial from two to ten and you know um we we have like catholic like the the um you know, Noah's Ark is actually on Mount Ararat and there are actually jinn <laughs> in it. Um, well, and we go there and there's secret agents. I'm actually talking about the, uh, the 2001 novel, um, Declare, which is, I think, one of the finest fantasy novels of all time, just to throw that in there. But so it's not that strange for anyone to really do that. It's, it's definitely been done all over the world. And Takahashi and Tanaka entertained the idea of like, what if, what if Gnosticism were literally true and the, and the myth, founding myth of Gnosticism that there is, um, you know, there is a good, um, a, a benevolent metaphysical God who mm-hmm. exists in the universe of ideas, P- Plato's universe. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. founder of Gnosticism, um, Valentinus was a schooled in Platonic, um, philosophy and sort of just took the Christianity he received in the early first century and said, Hey, let's run with this in the Platonic sense. So mm-hmm. what if there is a benevolent metaphysical God out there and, but the, the material world is evil and fallen. Mm-hmm. What if we apply Plato like very literally to Christianity and that's what Gnosticism is? Um, and, and what if that were true in a science fiction sense? So really, uh, you just have a three steps of, of the same kind. You have uh, you know, Valentinus taking Christianity and viewing it through the lens of Plato. And then you have uh, the Takahashi's viewing um, Gnosticism through the lens of science fiction. Um, and so, yeah, you have, yeah, so you have this interplanetary war system or war, war machine that um, is literally powered by God um, <laughs> and, and, and essentially is, is, is just like in Gnosticism, the Demiurge. It is the fallen mm-hmm. version, the, the evil mirror of God. It, it wants destruction and control. It, it is also bad at things. I mean, the, the whole plot of Xenogears revolves around the fact that Deus is actually really bad at getting its way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like the whole catamony system. I mean, the, 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 the this, this plot of Xenogears is just a number of failures, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. All these people land on this planet. I'm, I'm sort of spoiling Xenogears, even though Xenogears is kind Please, of uh, impossible. Anyone listening to at this point had better know about the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Xenogears is kind of impossible to spoil. Because everything I'm about <laughs> to say, if you haven't played the game, you're just going to be like, what? Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it, this, this interstellar war machine lands on a planet, tries to regenerate itself. Um, using the power of God and it, every attempt that it makes just ends up being corrupted and awful. Um, mm-hmm. It produces the gazelle ministry who rebel against it immediately. They, they go off on their own path. Um, it produces a bunch of, you know, people who are supposed to fan out, consume resources and then become spare parts for the, for the machine, but they end up being genetically defective. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then it launches a nuclear war to cleanse them. And then the next round of people that it breeds for its own body parts end up being even more rebellious. And they, they have their own armies and they have their own ideas about things that they don't want to become parts for him. And there's another war. Um, and then finally, it's running out of time. The catamony system can only last for 10,000 years, and it's running really out of time. It says, okay, we're just going to have to suck up whatever's here. There's not that much of it left. And uh, also, you know, there's these rebels who happen to have superpowers. Um, <laughs> so that, that's the conflict, right? It's like it's the Deus system, this, this false god, just not succeeding at doing anything it does, whereas the benevolent metaphysical god is just sort of like touching the lives of certain individuals and helping them to free itself to ascend back into a higher dimension so it's yeah. it's very gnostic in that sense it is very much good metaphysical bad physical um it's also really rather jewish in the in the sense that uh it's the there's the whole kabbalah aspect with the zohar literally appearing as a, i mean what's more literal than the zohar being an object right <laughs> zohar is in, in the book zohar zohar is the radiance um from god that pre-existed the universe um, mm-hmm. That radius went out from him and was a part of the creation. Um, so the light from beyond the universe essentially is what, and that's what the title of the track of the, of the game, oh, the opening. Oh, okay. Yeah. Light, light, from, the light from, it's like a yeah, light from the netherworld, which is actually would be better uh, translated as light from another universe. Far out. It's the music so, in the game is beautiful. I, I have to just oh, interject that. I'm sorry, but, um, but so the, the Zohar ends up sort of being the container for, this uh, trans physical being um, from another dimension. Um, so I, I haven't read that book, um, and I guess you've studied it quite a bit. Then, um, like, do you happen to know, like, what form of this were, was um, Takahashi and Saga? What were they reading? Like, what did they have access to about this stuff? And and how did they uh, did they have like an esoteric understanding of it, or were they just kind of reading it because it was cool and and out there? I mean, um, yes, I mean. The, the Zohar, I mean, you have to, like, in order to also understand Xenogears, you also have to understand not just Zohar, but also rabbinic tradition. Like, how, how yeah. do rabbis interpret other rabbis? Right, right. <laughs> so um, what happens with, with Zohar is there's this, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's not even a, a real rabbi, I don't think, in the, I want to say, 16th century. And he just gets an idea one day and starts writing this commentary on the book of Genesis. Um, and that commentary depends on lots of Hebrew puns because, uh-huh. uh, in the, in the Hebrew mystical tradition, uh, when God spoke the words that began the universe, he spoke them in Hebrew. Um, uh-huh. so those words are, are literally magic already. There's no, you don't need to do anything special. You just don't happen to have the authority granted to you by God for those words to actually take action. But if you did, those are the words you would say, you would just say the things in Hebrew and they would happen. That's why if in like, if you in the legend of the golem, if you write some words in Hebrew and then put it in the golem's mouth or write it on his forehead, it'll come to life because Hebrew words are the things they signify. Um, well, if you have the authority, well, God. this the author of the Zohar, he just got this idea to start making all these sort of linguistic, um, esoteric puns and 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 bit of wordplay and and um, you know uh, exegeses. Uh, of the book of Genesis and um, other rabbis who tended to rely on precedent a little more than this guy found <laughs> the book and then started this whole Kabbalah tradition. This is the first book of, of what they came to be called the Kabbalah, which is just a, a latter-day rabbinic tradition about the interpretation of the book of Genesis and all of its mystical implications that are not available to surface uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the surface. So 
Um, so there's a lot going on there, right? So uh, in order to understand Xenogears, you have to understand that Zohar is, has been interpreted and reinterpreted, and Zohar is also written in such a way to be eminently interpretable. It's almost like a uh -huh. poem by John Ashbury or, or someone like that, where it lends uh -huh. itself to many different kinds of readings and was probably deliberately written that way. Um, and, and so there's lots of different ways you can view it and lots of different ways that people have viewed it, viewed it both, both rabbis and non-rabbis. Um, and of course there are many, many, many commentaries on it, starting even from, 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 you know, um, from Gentiles, starting with Pico della Mirandola in, in, in Italy. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he was the first Westerner to, or the first, uh, of the Goyim to try and interpret it and didn't have a great time of it because he, he really walked <laughs> into a bear trap there. Um, but so, yeah, lots of people have been fascinated with it in this intervening centuries, and it's spawned all manner of, of tertiary commentaries, and it being the secondary commentary. Um, and, and people think that even like, you know, Freud was essentially in a rabbinic tradition in a certain sense, right? That his education was founded upon the notion that he had received certain ideas from his culture that then made their way into his philosophy and medicine. Um, cool. And so that's why you also have Freudian psychology in the game, right? There's a connection. Um, yeah. Jewish thought is inescapable in Freud, but it's, you know, Jewish thought as it is received by Freud has a lot to do with Kabbalah and the rabbinic tradition. Um, so you have all these things that are naturally linked before they get to the hands of, of Takahashi and Tanaka. Um, so there's already connections between them and, and, and people have made those connections before. It's just that Takahashi and Tanaka wanted to make those connections in a science fiction setting. And yeah. so I think what they, what they, the connection they make, and um, I've written sort of a lot about this, and we did a video with um, Resident Arc about this, where they said, what, do, what does Gnosticism and, uh, the, and Kabbalah and Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology, which is essentially a branch of Freudian psychology, what do those things have in common? Um, and they're all about a path to becoming whole. You know, so something tries to become whole. Um, yeah. That means something really different if whether you're talking about, you know, balancing the ego, the id, and the superego, or if you're talking about becoming one with the, the, the mystical non-material side of the universe, or if it means, you know, um, in the Jewish tradition, like a man and woman balance each other out, they become one. Or, mm -hmm. you know, you had to have, you had to have knowledge and, and there's the spiritual and physical in that tradition too. So but you, you see these things appear, um, you know, uh, the wave existence is trying to transcend the physical reality to become one with the rest of himself in a higher reality. Um, mm -hmm. Deus is trying to put himself back together after he was blown up by the captain of the Eldridge and doing so in an evil way. Fay and Ellie are complements of each other, the anima and animus, which also mm -hmm. brings up the uh, Jungian side. So everyone is trying to become whole. Or, uh, Margie and Bart have both have one half of the Fatima Jasper, and so does yeah. Bart and Sig. They're, they they become a family. That's how they become whole. Faye and Ellie become whole by, you know, uh, becoming a couple. Um, uh, Krellian, poor damaged Krellian, um, becomes whole by by becoming one with God. He right. He succeeds um, yeah. after he commits genocide and loses the battle, no less. <laughs> he kind of throws the battle, right? I mean, it's yeah. so I, I love the um, I love the the take that you guys do on your video. I think it's probably the the best thing out there about Xenogears. Um, and this idea of becoming whole, I think, applies to the game itself as well, right? It's it's a it's a peaceful 
um, opening uh, after the explosion of the ship. Um, but then you have like you know the giant robots come in. Uh, you have the um, the whole you know rescuing Margie sequence. But then you also have to visit some flying. Uh, cities where there's Soylent systems. So it's like a mishmash of stuff. And then, of course, disc one and disc two fit together kind of awkwardly. But somehow it all sort of comes together um, and makes up, again, like an awesome game uh, of compelling and enthralling story and a fun game to play. Um, and I wonder to what extent, like, some of this stuff uh, thematically in the game is kind of reflected in, in the game itself, um, in the gameplay or just in some of the the, the decisions that were made, um, some of the maybe end arounds that they came up with to to get the game completed. Um, could could you talk a little bit about that uh, game design yeah. side of things? Yeah. So Xenogears is is actually a little bit undercooked in the game yeah. design side. I, I love Xenogears. <laughs> I love it. Um, I don't think it could have existed except as a video game, in the sense right. that, like, I think some of the impact would have been lessened if it had been anything else because. If you think about it, so Xenogears, like your your moment, first moment of agency in the game is you are sitting in literally the smallest, um, I think actually yeah, I think the smallest discrete room in the game. Um, there might be a bathroom or two. There, yeah. I think there's a bathroom or two in Kiss Lab and stuff where there's like smaller yep, yep. room. But you were, in, you were in one of the you were in the smallest one percent of rooms in the game with your easel. Um, and by the end of the game, you are in gigantic buildings the size of cities, right? That are yeah. floating in the sky, and you are just a moat against this massive background. <laughs> and I don't think that 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 sense of scale of like, oh crap, somebody built this. Like I was in the basement in a village in a stone room where it was very small, where I had my bed, my easel in my bed, and you know I was from very humble beginnings, and now I'm in these, you know, this this spaceship that has the eldritch knowledge, and I'm in a even in a giant robot, it still dwarfs me. You know, I think there's a certain effect of that that would not have worked if it had not been a video game. Um, at the same time, though, the battle system, I mean, like, it's got some cool ideas, the, the mechanical stuff, it, like, really cool ideas, but just a little bit undercooked as everything in the game is. Mm -hmm. um, for example, everybody gets lots of uh, elemental attacks, but yes. only 10% of monsters in the entire game have an elemental strength or weakness. Um, so, like, all of those elements are totally superfluous except they look really <laughs> cool um and that's you know like that's unusual for a squaresoft game at that time typically what you see is that um you'll tend to see two to three elemental resists per battle in in the nearest contemporary final fantasy 7 yeah um you really do see like so there's large prevalence and, and those are themed like you know birds are resistant to earth because they're flying and ice creatures are resistant to ice because they are already cold and things like that it's all basic stuff but xenogears lacks that largely um, despite having elemental attacks, um, many of them beautifully rendered and probably painstakingly paid for with, with uh, art resources that perhaps could have been directed towards accomplishing other things. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. you know, they, they, it was Takahashi's first directorial effort. I think I want to say that um, Hiromichi Tanaka was the producer on the game and he was only there for a little while and seemed to have taken more laissez-faire. But of course, uh, Tanaka, or, um, uh, uh, Takahashi um, was famously driving the game ahead of what could be done. He needed to finish yeah. his story. Uh, so I, I think he was just taking the Final Fantasy VII approach of let's get rid of character classes. Why don't we just get rid of gameplay for most of this too and just, just <laughs> yeah. go for the story. Um, we're going we're gonna to be the, the most niche specialization of all time. And I, he might, they might well have been, at least in the JRPG context. Um, because, yeah, I mean, like the combo system 
it doesn't make that much sense. Um, <laughs> it, there's never there's never any reason. Like if you look at the damage formula, the, um, it, you know the 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 higher level combos deliver both more damage per turn, but also more damage per point of AP spent than anything else. So except for in a few battles where you want to save up um, yeah. AP because the enemy counterattacks you, I think there are like four or five of those offhand. Except for those, you, you basically just want to spam your best ability at all times without concern for, for how much damage or efficiency or element. You're just going to go for it. Mm -hmm. um, gears modify that slightly because they have fuel. Mm -hmm. um, um, so you, you, you have to be careful about using boosters. You have to be careful about healing. Um, but there's not a ton of tactics involved in that. Like Sometimes you want to set outside of the battle before the last boss if you don't have a chance to refuel and use that charger item to recharge most of your fuel so you can go into the boss battle and, and afford it. Um, mm -hmm. but that's not, that's pure strategy, no tactics, right? You don't change what you're doing in battle. You're only changing the material conditions with which you start the battle. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that, that sort of chips away at, at the, at the nuanced tactical things that you would have in, in, in many RPGs, um, even streamlined ones like Final Fantasy VII. Um, some of the itemization, though, is, is actually pretty cool. They have some cool itemization ideas that don't exist in other things like, um, uh, you know, when you, when you get your gear, your strength no longer matters. Mm -hmm. It's all the strength of the engine. So don't waste a lot of time building up your strength. It's not going to it's not going to matter. Most of the, the final battles are in gears, um, which, you know, some people are like, ah, well, why did I level up my character so much? And you know, <laughs> Jokes on you. I mean, if it's a game about giant robots, you know the the last boss is going to be fought in a giant robot. You should <laughs> be aware of this by now. Um, spoiler alert. But other things do actually matter. So your like your your reflexes stat, the response mm -hmm. stat depends on your 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 sprite your your sprite level character stat, and that your ether stat affects your ether machine stat directly. So um, that whole um, dichotomy is is pretty cool. I wish they had gone further with that. I wish there was a I, th I wish there was like some kind of one to one, maybe not one to one, but one to X, um, you know, modifier for every stat that you have on the ground in in, yeah. in your machine it would be that would be interesting because then every character would really be two characters, right? Um, but like um, Rico is Rico on the ground, and he's Rico in the machine, right? He's just a big <laughs> brawler with tons of HP. Yeah. And, and for some reason, Maria, the thirteen-year-old girl, is the same. She's a she's a She's a somewhat chunky, tanky person on the ground, and in her, in her gear, she's the same. Um, and, and Billy is also, too. Billy has the ether gun on the ground. He's got the ether gun in his gear. It would be nice to have seen something different. And Satan is, of course, the best character in the game um, until, yeah. they think, until, like, level 60. Um, yeah. And he's the best character in the gear and in, in, the, in, in the game in his gear. Um, he's, <laughs> fast. he's faster than everybody else. He does lots of damage. Um, he has cool abilities that actually matter. Um, so yeah, it's like if there had been a changeover, like when people get into their gears, they, the, the way that their stats matter changes radically, that would be interesting. I think, I think probably there's only, there's one way where that is true, where if you get the ether doubler item, one of the most yes. legendary items of all time, Ellie becomes, you know, um, Ellie becomes the person she is in the story, right? Exactly. She becomes that person in battle. She is that she, she has the power of God. Um, there it is right, right in your stat line. Yeah. Um, so no, that, she, that bit of consonance, but other than that, there's not much. Yeah. So she she even uh, has an Omni Gear that doesn't appear um, in the story until you are no longer in control of her at all, right? She's already um, basically left the party 
uh, and you're just seeing that happen in this Omni gear that you never get to actually use. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's some definite points in which the the game is is just yeah unfinished or um, shows signs that there was more that was supposed to happen than could possibly be contained within uh, you know what's already a very long long game. Um, yes, there's even a missing dungeon um, for for Bethla. Which was the um the the launching site for all of the nuclear weapons that ended the yeah in 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 Xenogears or in uh, six thousand the year year six thousand since the crash something like that right yeah yeah so these 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 dungeons that you just sort of are walked through via narration and then you show up for maybe a boss battle at the end of it or or maybe not even that right um so yeah th this kind of schematization of the game down to its kind of bare essentials um what what do you make of disc two um because i as i replayed it just recently i really enjoyed it uh way more than i expected to on replaying um but uh but that's because i really like stories i guess um how, how do you as a game design standpoint like what do you do with disc two um you just have to accept it for what it is i mean you know it's like um I don't know. I'm trying to think of a really good comparison to a work of art that is incredible but also deeply flawed. Uh, I don't know, like like a like a Mahler symphony. It's just too long, but also beautiful, <laughs> right? Like uh, we want to get to you know we want to get to movement new of symphony uh, movement um, two of symphony ten or whatever it is where the uh, the beautiful brass come in and uh, you want to get there, but you know you have to sit through a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It's worth it though. Um, my my. The producer I work with um, on on several JRPGs, we we make we, I, I make them for a large part of my income for a living these days. Um, he he couldn't get through Xenogears. He was just like, this just isn't for me, man. I know people swear by this. I know everybody in our Discord chat will make uh -huh. JRPGs. They're like, oh, Xenogears so good, but he couldn't even get through like the Black Moon Forest. Oh he was my! Just like, just talking so much. He's like, I get it. Um. And and I was like, yeah, I, I understand. It's not for everybody. Like, it is a specialization of a specialization. Um, you know, it, it's it's the tertiary commentary of video games. And boy, I don't know. Disco. I mean, Disco still has cool moments, nevertheless. And yeah. nobody knows how to make a boss fight more dramatic than Xenogears. A lot of those yeah. boss fights feel dramatic. They just like these horrifying monsters that that do horrifying things to you like when the the bloody brothers or the red rum they drink yeah. your blood it's like <laughs> like oh they weren't they, they weren't lying those those creatures that's the only way they could feel better and they that shows up um in the game right there on the mechanics bada bing bada boom um so yeah i mean I, I, it does certain things well um when it's able to do those things I'm glad it. I'm glad it exists. I enjoyed it very much. It didn't bother me at all. I, I think playing through it again, the most recent time I did, I think I watched the Let's Play the most recent time actually. But even the couple times yeah. before that, when I was in my twenties, by then, it did strike me that um, that some of it was a bit navel gazing. Um, oh yeah, which can, can be okay, but it, it, that that's one of the places where Masato Kato was very clear. Um, I remember reading a uh, a a review of Chrono Cross saying this is a good game, but um, you know, full half the characters and NPCs talk like uh, a sophomore philosophy major who's just had his second joint. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, little, just very like far out, man. 
um, and very meditative. And, and that, could, that can be hit or miss. Like even in Chrono Cross, there are points where it's like, yeah, some of the meditations of these people actually are appropriate and make you think interesting things. But, um, you know, when Faye is sitting in a chair, like talking about dreams, it's just like <laughs> I, I did wish he would have gotten to the point sooner. Um, yeah. Like I, I, Faye is for me the primary offender. Like every word out of Krellian's mouth makes me feel electric. I've never seen a villain like him before mm-hmm. or since. I don't, I don't know that I ever will. Like here is a guy who is just, it's just all there for you right away. He's just so vulnerable. Like how does someone that powerful also so vulnerable at all yeah. times? I'm going to tell you exactly what I think and feel. Everything crosses my mind. I'm going to just tell you and you're not going to stop me anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So every word out of his mouth is just electric. Um, and, and, and that works. But, but every half the things that Faye says seemed superfluous to me. Um, not that, like, not that he himself was, but just like he, he could have been uh, uh, more brief. Like he could, yes. he could have been to the point. And I, I know a lot of that is act, actually a Japanese um, convention called Aisuchi, which means it's just a, a, a verbal confirmation, um, a way of being polite in Japanese. That I found actually I had when I after I got back from Japan and, and from an immersion program there, I I would wow. use Aisuchi in English. I'd be like, Oh, is that right? Is that right? Oh, how about that? And I would just people like, why are you saying these things? And I'm like, sorry, <laughs> it gets drilled into you. You have to say it in, in Japanese. Um, and so I, I, I wish that they those things had been localized out so hmm. that it would just have more of the flow of a conversation that, be, you know, like a Japanese person in, in reading that in Japanese would think nothing of it. It's just, of course, the yeah. way people talk. But when you localize, you need to make it just the way people talk over here. Yeah, the, to the point where there's... Um... There's times when entire scenes in the game are essentially just replayed right there for you, word for word, um, or will be quoted back with some slight variation, maybe. Um, but I, I found that that, in a way, uh, helped me with understanding the game as, uh, like, investigating itself or interpreting itself, like, before my eyes, like, the characters thinking back over things that they'd experienced and, and processing them. Um, that's kind of how I read that. And it does get a little bit, uh, you know, t- tedious at times, <laughs> but, um, but insofar as they are sort of showing the player how to go about interpreting the game, I find that kind of interesting. And you see that with the art within the game too, where, um, you know, Faye, of course, the artist, that's sort of one of his components of his personality, at least. Um, but then you have Satan, who's sort of like this art historian or like art buff who will like look at a music box with you and sort of try to explain you know what it is you're feeling as you're as you're experiencing this art or or when you get to the cathedral uh he's he's taking the statues very seriously whereas you know bart is like <laughs> what it's like a statue i don't get it you know so you, you see like the different ways in which um i think that the player is is invited to to interpret the experience that they're they're um they're having with the game um, yeah, I think that is an important thing. I think like, so like the phase constant incredulity about everything that everyone else says is a reflection of his, you know, parochial or- origins, or at least the, the parochial origins of his, the superego, which is his literal personality. Right. Um, you know, that's another good example of like, what if we just took this scientific concept literally? What we have right. literally had a super ego, ego and it as people. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, his, his shock at everything, his perpetual incredulity just, you know, is important, 
to the plot, but still could have been localized in a way that made sense for um, Westerners. Be like, like, what? They have those? That doesn't right. that, that exists? That's a thing? Like, we, of course, we, we have ways of saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody can be incredulous like a Westerner. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, like, Richard Honeywood, who translated, and I want to give him all the credit in the world because he had to translate 100, and, I think, like 160,000 words in a Holy month. Cow. Yeah, and he had like he even he had to do like certain parts of the scripting, like because the um the furigana, the little um readings above of certain kanji that tell you their archaic meaning. Um, oh wow! The way to translate that, to localize that, and so he of course did an admirable job where he put the dashes like the time of the gospel. Oh yeah. He was trying to localize. Yeah, was was the notion that um, these words mean something more? This is a proper noun, right? Because this is a, mm-hmm. a bigger deal than the word. That you normally see and and of course the japanese understand that instinctively when they see a, an arcane kanji with an arcane reading they're like oh, okay um it means something more than it normally would um honeywood had to of course figure out a way to convey that in english mm-hmm. um and you know so that was that was admirable but like he had to he had such a big job on his hand you know like um <laughs> he had to figure out the, the word bathyscaph um <laughs> i don't know what i don't know what the japanese you know, word for deep sea diver is, but you know, he didn't, he didn't have time to just be like, Oh, you know, I'm going to, not going to call this bathyscaph. I'm going to call it, which I think they repeat the word like six times. I'm going to call it a deep sea diver because nobody uses the word bathyscaph. <laughs> but he just, that's was a fossicker. When old man Bao calls himself a fossicker. I love that. Line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for like with, with Bao, that kind of makes sense. Like, of course, this guy who is deliberately being obtuse would say something like that. <laughs> that makes sense. But like Faye and, and Barton and, and, and Billy, I'll be like, Bathyscaph. Like, it's just like he was just in a hurry and just looked up what the, the, the four kanji compound meant and just just put it in there. Or maybe, the, maybe it was uh, katakana. But he was just like, I don't have time to think about this because yeah. he had such a, you know, an, um, uh, an onerous job already. So that I wish that he had just had another month yeah. to sit there and make a – because he probably I, – I, I, I doubt that he made two drafts. I bet that he made one draft, and that was mm-hmm. it. He got through one draft, and that went to the, off to the publisher. Um, is there any game that has more text than Xenogears? Is it oh, the longest script of any game? Um, I, I, I think probably almost every big RPG that exists nowadays has quite a bit more. Um, Dragon Age had like three. Dragon Age three had like three hundred thousand words. No um, way. Sixty, but um, it, it's like apples to oranges. Um, uh, I could deploy one of my favorite metaphors. Um, you know, the, what's the? Let me ask you. You be my straight man. What's the biggest lake in the world? Uh, is it Lake Michigan? Well, Lake Superior. But then, ah. um, you, this is, we're still proceeding fine. But that's the biggest lake by area. If you go by volume, the biggest lake in the world is Lake um, Lake Baikal in Russia, because ah. it depends what you count. That's Got my. It. That's if there could be one lesson learned from all of my books and my research is it depends on what you count. I counted <laughs> the Xenogears words, um, and you you in Xenogears you have to see about one hundred fourteen thousand words. You must yeah. no Got choice it. if you beat the game. Um, there are one hundred sixty thousand if you count NPCs. That's rough. I didn't I didn't count every NPC jot and tittle. Um, but in Dragon Age, you do not have to see all three hundred thousand words. There is branching dialogue for everybody. Got it. So. Lake Baikal, right? Lake Baikal versus Lake Superior, right? Which yeah. which is it? Like which is bigger? 
Um, I would say you know, your feels bigger than um, virtually anything else because you know the way you digest it is it's one big meal. Whereas you know, if you're playing say Dragon Age Three or Baldur's Gate Two or whatever gigantic text RPG, I think I think uh, Planescape Torment was another one that had hundreds of thousands of words. You know, you're you're only not only are you gonna take those in bites as you do little quests that are not necessarily con- connected to one another directly, but you also are going to um, you, you literally are precluded from seeing all the dialogue in the game because some of it is mutually exclusive. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so, um, hmm. yeah, so I, I don't know which one's bigger, but Xenogears feels the biggest to me because of that. But that's also subjective. So, um, yeah. Just to, to come back to the one of the things you said about Krellian being this kind of compelling um, character within the game. Is there is there another character that you think is more interesting, or is he is he your favorite from from the story? I've, I've never I've never um, in video games I've never had a character as interesting as him in video games. Cool. Um, okay. It's compelling. I, I I might say there are other characters who from literature or film. Um, I think Marlon I, the one who reminds me of the most is Marlon Brando's portrayal of um, uh, Don Corleone. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. That's like two people for whom it's all pretty much up front. And you don't like, and like, like you take them as these kind of laid back people, but then they have these moments where it's like, oh, right. This is, he, he got to his position, not by accident. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and so you those flashes of lightning where you like, where he turns it on. Like when, when Krillian turns on the, on the gazelle ministry, you're like, yeah. oh, right. I forget, he's vulnerable, but at the same time, like, you know, Don Corleone is, is a loving grandparent, but he's also a vicious mobster, right? Like, it's yeah. it's not an accident. He is where he is, and that 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 dichotomy is, of course, wonderful. And um, Satan in Paradise Lost is another one like that, where he's this yeah. magnificent conquering Achillean hero, but he's actually this fearful lickspittle liar at the same time. Right? That that's <laughs> and or um, maybe the the Joker in the in the Dark Knight is another uh-huh. good example. He's, he's multiple things all wrapped into one package, and they seem contradictory, but they somehow cohere. But I, I can't think of a video game example of that, no. Yeah, no, so with Krellian's kind of story, um, as we see it come out in the very, very end of the game, really, um, he he has a kind of mirror image figure in Lacan, right, from that that flashback to the, the loss of Sophia, and they, they kind of take their separate routes from there. Um, Lacan goes off makes contact, but imperfectly destroys the world, essentially. Krellian, you know, goes and um, says that he's going to create God with his own hands, right? So the one is going to kill God, the other is going to create God. Um, and at the end of the game, he, he sort of does, right? He, he makes it out. He, he, gets, he gets away with the... A magnificent uh, bastard. One more time? He's a magnificent bastard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a beast. Um, you, you get to fight him once towards the very, very end, whereas you... You tangle with Graf a num- a numerous times, uh, for, for better and for worse. Um, and so, I mean, Krellian's, I think, one of the more interesting moral figures in the game, too, because, as you mentioned, right, he, he's in all, he, he'll do anything to, to accomplish his ends. Um, and he's successful, and the game sort of rewards him for it, in a way, there at the end. Um, your fight with him is not particularly gruesome. I mean, it's... Uh, it's one of those sort of staged battles that you, you can't really lose. Um, and he flies off with, with the two angel wings, right? So in your in your video, you make a, a big point, I think, rightly about the two separate angels with their one wing each, right, that represent humanity and um, coming together. 
whereas Krellian, he gets to have both wings there at the end, and, and he, you know, ah. And, and you have to get his butt as he flies away. You're just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. That actually adds to it, because it's just like, is it? Um, but yeah, I mean, Krellian is just like, like, how could you get more? It's like, it's the bad guy winning and you respect him for it, right? It's just like imp- almost impossible. Um, like, I, I think, I think what it is about Krellian is just like that you, un- I, it's just what he does is so understandable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, like if, if, if I were in his position and I pursued the conclusion he pursued, like that is what I would do, except he's doing a better job of it than I am. Right. He made all the right decisions, played all the right games. Here is a man who took 499 years and just made the absolute most of all, every single one of them. Um, and he just, I mean, he, he orchestrates the, 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 the conclusion of the game as well, right? He brings Fandelli back together. He sets her free. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. And he protects them as they're actually about to fall into some kind of interdimensional abyss. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he, the thing is, he really seems to actually genuinely, I mean, he clearly genuinely cares for Ellie. He yeah. had no intention of hurting her ever. He was, you know, even when she was in his lab, he was being minimally invasive, using a nanomachine to probe her. And then he's like, hey, you're, you're great. I'm going to protect you. Don't worry about the ministry. You're going to be fine. Um, I would never let anything happen to you. Um, although Graf is the same way. If you have Ellie in your party and during the fight in, um, in, on the, on the um, Goliath, right. uh, he won't attack yeah. Um, right. Um, so, but like, you know, like, but, but Graf, of course, is, has, is problems controlling his rage and even controlling his literal body. Um, Con, Con Wong sometimes emerges, yes. um, uh, which is another one of those imperfections that make the game so special to me. Like Deus can't execute his plan correctly. Um, and, and, um, Lacan, Graf cannot execute his plan perfectly because he picked, you know, he basically picked the James Bond of, of Shavat to take over. <laughs> As it turns out, you know, James Bond is uh, James Bond. Um, you know, he, he's not an easy prey. Um, and, and Graf, of course, didn't know that because he was so hasty and, and, and imperfect. imperfect. Um, but then, that, of course, that brings us back to Krellian, who pulls it off, right? He's the only one in the game who he basically uses what the Gnostic sort of dream is, right? A Gnostic dream is to say, I use knowledge to transcend the physical universe and become one with God by having the right secret knowledge, the right secret wisdom, which is yeah. exactly what Krell does, which of course makes him just, just spectacular in a, in the sense of, in that context, like, just like, Oh wow, this is what every intellectual mm-hmm. aspires to secretly. It's the deep fan, like every, every, you know, every warrior secretly wants to be, the Achilles and be untouchable on the battlefield and conquering hero and be Alexander and be unstoppable. And every intellectual secretly aspires to transcend the physical plane and enter the realm of ideals. And Krellian yeah. does it. But it's interesting. Yeah. Cause at the very end, he nevertheless says that he envies uh, Faye and Ellie or Lacan and Ellie, as he calls it. Right. And so there's this kind of, the game gets to sort of have it both ways where it's a happy ending for Krellian. He gets what he wanted. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a happy ending for Faye and Ellie. They return to the physical world, and uh, to all appearances, things are going to go pretty well from here. Although, you know, there is supposed to be a, a episode six where something happens, I guess. But um, uh, episode, oh my gosh, Krellian, one, one of the most cryptic things, and just boggles the mind to even think about the implications is Krellian uh, says, um, "I go to walk with God, uh, even though I don't know if there'll be any place with for me on upon my return." So mm. that maybe Krelly plans on returning to the physical plane, which boggles yeah. the mind to think of what that would imply. 
um, and what That's would happen in an episode. And I, I would have to probably read the um, actually although the, the the word for return um, kaidu is ambiguous in Japanese too. It can mean to return home. Um, he could mean to heaven, or it can mean uh-huh. to return home to the plane. So I'm guessing there's no there's the same ambiguity is true of of both English and Japanese script. But yes, it it does boggle my mind. I, I as you were talking about you know like Grillian get to, getting to have it both ways, saying oh you know I envy I envy your relationship. I think I think it highlights another thing for me that I, that blows me away about Krillian, which is that he has such self knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like villains, villains tend not to have that, right? That's sort of right. the whole point. That's what makes the villains that the hero triumphs because the hero arrives at self knowledge before the villain does. Um, but Krillian, he's like, well, I, I envy your relationship, but I also know that I could never have it. Exactly. It's I know myself too well. I know what I've done to get here. And he, when he just says, tells Ellie in his lab, you know, you're beautiful. When I see you, I'm reminded of the elaborateness of the human form. Like, right. an insecure person doesn't say that. <laughs> he, he just like, I, I just, I, you know, the thing, you, what you are reminds me of my desire, but I know that I could never have it. Yes. Yes. And he's, he seems to have sort of come to terms with that. And um, he pursues that all the way to the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so- is there, I mean, is there a last uh, question that you're left with as the game concludes? I mean, for me, it's that kind of, um, that that incredible conclusion of the vision of the game, um, I think I find really inspiring. I just, like I said, the music is such an important part of that too, that's that's playing there and, and credits and whatnot. But um, what, what kinds of questions or what kinds of final thoughts would you have as you're, as you're looking at Xenogears with me? Um, I mean, I've been trying to conclude things about Xenogears for 22 <laughs> years without without running out. <laughs> so especially when I, I heard uh, Retrograde, the Anesia podcast, I, I signed up. I think it's the only Patreon I support. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. They're great. They're we, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And the comment section is also quite rich, um, yeah. which is uh, almost the best part about it, because then you have all the other Xenoheads have come together, including um, one of the one of their followers is actually a nanotechnologist. Who said she was inspired? Yeah, she said I was inspired by Xenogears to become a nanotechnologist, and I was like, "Did you tell um, Kaori Tanaka that? Because like, I think she would be pretty stoked." Yeah, Um, right. Like, imagine somebody that someone's life that much. Like, oh, I got a PhD in a a cutting edge science because of you. (laughs) Uh, So, if if, I mean, if there's any final thought about Xenogears, is that it's it's such a rich text that. it's like a, it's like a modern, it's a classic, like a, a true classic in a video game. I think there are others, because um, okay. you know, there's not. I don't think there's one right way or one way to be a classic, right? I, mm. You can do it by a lot of different ways, um, in the sense that, like, you know, a, a jazz song, uh, "Cheek to Cheek," is a classic in the same, not in the same way that Beethoven's Ninth is a classic. Mm. Um, but I think that it, Xenogears does it in a way that's different from the other games. Um, you know, I think Final Fantasy VII is a classic because of its whole experience. I would say the same thing about Chrono Trigger or Yoshi's Island, or um, you know many other games that are, are, are you know Diablo II. Those, what what makes those games classic is those games have those games have more in common with each other than they do with Xenogears, which is a classic of ideas. It's a classic in the way a man without qualities is classic, or the way that um, Paradise Lost or or Hamlet is a classic. It's just full of challenging ideas that don't get resolved, that but nevertheless in their imperfect state. I guess what what um, 
kids called um, their negative capability Ooh, you know, nice. of having the two, the two contrasting ideas existing side by side in tension without decohering. Um, I think that that's what makes Xenogears a classic. And so it stands out from other video games, which don't do that, which do other worthy things, which, which don't do that thing that Xenogears does that great literature also does. Well said. I, I really like both those points about the game as, as kind of a work, but also the, the people that um, have been brought together in the ways it's impacted people. It's, it's really, really great talking to you. Thanks so much for your time, uh, Patrick. Uh, look forward hey, to, no problem. Nice to, talk to you. talking again sometime. All right. Cheers.